North Korea is launching missiles again. Iran is inching toward a nuclear weapons capability. Russia is escalating its aggression in Ukraine. And China is sprinting to field a military capable of invading Taiwan and defeating any effort by Washington to intervene. Considering this extraordinary array of threats, what kind of air force does the United States have? And what kind of air force does it need? What does the war in Ukraine tell us about the importance of air force capabilities? What specific U.S. aircraft should be retired and which should be fielded without delay? What should be the role of the Air Force in sinking ships in a contingency in the Taiwan Strait? And with Russia and North Korea rattling their nuclear sabers, what about the bombers and the intercontinental ballistic missiles that the Air Force oversees that represent two legs of our nation's nuclear deterrent triad? To discuss these questions and more, I'm pleased to be joined by Lieutenant General Richard G. Moore. He's the Air Force Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs, where he focuses on building the Air Force of the future to support the national defense strategy. I am Bradley Bowman, Senior Director of FTD's Center on Military and Political Power, standing in for Cliff May. I'm pleased you've joined us too, here on Foreign Policy. General Moore, I want to welcome you and uh, thank you so much for making time to sit down and talk with me. Hey, thanks, Brad. I'm, I'm excited to be here and excited to share the Air Force's story. Well, you know, I, I always think it's uh, it's good to start out by letting the listeners just to get to know you as an individual first before. So maybe a little biography here first. I, I see that uh, you're a graduate of that other academy, that Air Force Academy in uh, 1992. And I see that you majored in chemistry while you were there. Um, so I'd love to kind of hear about why you went to the Air Force Academy and, and uh, kind of the backstory there. You bet. So my dad was in the Air Force. I was actually born at the Army Hospital uh, next to McGuire. Uh-huh. My dad was a, a C-141 navigator at the time. And uh, the Air Force was kind of always something that was that was on the forefront for me. But my intent was to be a doctor. I didn't think I was pilot qualified uh, because I wore glasses. And so I went to the Air Force Academy and majored in chemistry with the intent of going on to medical school. And one day in my life, I've been able to pass a flight physical and it happened to be exactly the right day. <laughs> and so yeah. I figured if I if I went to pilot training and I later decided I wanted to be a doctor, I'd go to medical school. Uh-huh. But if I went to medical school straight out of the academy, that road didn't have a fork in it. Yeah. So I took the road with the fork, but I never took the fork. Got and so it. here okay. I am 30 yeah. years later. Yeah. Um, and uh, have never have never looked back and uh, have enjoyed uh, a, a fantastic career. But I've never spent any time in a chemistry lab, and I'm okay with that. <laughs> so, you, you mentioned chemistry again there at the end. I, uh, uh, as I was mentioning to my one of my colleagues before recording here, chemistry was almost my undoing at West Point. Uh, you know, I was a, I was a poli sci guy, and uh, uh, um, chemistry made me humble. Let's let's put it that way. And so whenever I see someone who majors in chemistry, who also has thousands of hours as a pilot. That's you know that's a pretty impressive combo. So we started our sophomore years in organic chemistry with 44 chemistry majors, and we came out of that year with nine. <laughs> There you go. Talk about attrition. Yeah, exactly. Well, very good. Um, so, uh, you know, before we kind of get to your current uh, duty description, current job and your current inbox, we'd love to just kind of start at the, at the broadest kind of uh, grand strategic level in terms of the the uh, the national security environment that we confront as Americans. And, um, you know, I, when I when I talk to, uh, you know, patriotic friends and relatives around the country, I, I, a lot of them kind of, it seems to me, have, you know, the 1991 Gulf War in their mind in terms of, you know, uh, continued American uh, uh, military superiority, uh, the capabilities of our of our uh, adversaries or potential adversaries. And I do do my part from a humble foxhole to kind of try to help them understand how things are changed. But uh 
uh, you know, since you're you're in the hot seat now and, and and have access to information that many of us don't, just at an unclassified level, I'd love to hear your kind of general comments on, on the threats we confront as Americans and how they've changed over time. Well, the 1991 Gulf War is a great way to start this conversation. When we went into the 1991 Gulf War, uh, we were ready for high-end conflict. We had about 4,000 fighters. Uh, we were ready for a war with Russia. Our pilots were getting something like 26 hours a month. Uh, our fighters averaged about eight years old. Uh, and to fight the war in the Gulf, we had we had uh, a decided advantage and we used it to win. Right. As we now look towards the threat that we face, it's no longer low-end conflict in the desert. It's no longer a discussion uh, about how to use the forces that we have to great advantage. It's it's a very different look at a vastly more capable enemy over truly vast distances. Uh, and our force is not the same as it was in 1991. Instead of 4,000 fighters, we have about 2,000. Instead of eight years old, they average 29 years old. And instead of 26 or so hours a month, our fighter pilots are getting about seven. And we are ready for war in the desert. We are not ready uh, to confront a peer adversary over the distances involved in the Pacific. And that is the task before us. The task that we have is to make ourselves ready to confront China, to defeat Chinese aggression if we have to. Uh, and and the, the size of that task is greater, I think, than most people appreciate. We'll come back to those numbers uh, that you conveyed there. I, I think those are very powerful and speak volumes. Uh, you know, the... Uh, uh, you know, half as large a, f a fleet uh, that's you know, more than three times older with our pilots getting a fraction of the flight hours is what I heard you say there. We'll come back to come back to that in a second. But, um, you know, I was looking at the uh, testimony earlier this year of the secretary of the Air Force and chief of staff of the Air Force uh, to the Senate Armed Service Committee. And, and one uh, one sentence in their um, prepared testimony uh, jumped out to me. Let me just read it now. It says, we must be ready to mobilize against a peer competitor who has spent decades researching and developing the means to attack the systems and infrastructure we depend on to go to war through cyber and non-cyber means. I, I suspect they're referring to uh, uh, China there. Uh, China, as the, many of the listeners will know, um, is um, has a hostile ideology, has an economy that uh, rivals ours, and is using that increased wealth to undertake the most significant military modernization effort in the history of the People's Republic of China. And so any specific comments, General, on on China in particular. It's it's both words and actions with China. Xi Jinping has said that he wants his army to be ready by 2027 to undertake a reunification of China. Uh, and the actions that he has been taking over the last couple of decades certainly indicate that he's committed to that. We have spent the last couple of decades fighting a counterinsurgency warfare. China has spent the last couple of decades modernizing for high-end warfare. That goes for everything from um, the Air Force, the rocket forces, cyber, space, their nuclear enterprise, uh, their ships, the quantity of them, not just their capability, but also their capacity. All of those things uh, have been on the rise. And I think if you use one portfolio as an exemplar, the fighters that they've produced are pretty good and they're mm -hmm. a challenge. But mm -hmm. what they really have done very, very well is develop and spiral missile technology much more quickly than we have over the last 20 years. And I think that's a great demonstration of their commitment to this. This is not just rhetoric. It's backed up by actions. 
the rhetoric though is there as well. Yeah, and that's a that's a great point. And I would just add quickly before moving on is that the head of uh, strategic command. Uh, this is the uh, the uh, combatant command uh, that oversees our our nuclear deterrent. Uh, talked about a strategic breakout that China was conducting that uh, that uh, that he called breathtaking. And I think that's important uh, to consider that they're as you said they're not only saying things that are concerning, but they're backing it up with actions, preparing to potentially employ, employ some of these capabilities. Uh, in the future, I hope not, but we have to uh, be ready. Um, so, transition, if I could, General, to your current position. You know, you've had a, a prestigious career. You've you're uh, you know a, a three-star general in the Air Force. Uh, you've you've had lots of different commands. You, you've you're four thousand hours in a variety of different aircraft. But currently, you're the Deputy Chief of Staff for Plans and Programs in Headquarters U.S. Air Force. What is that position, and and what what's your, what's your day job there? First of all, it's very exciting. It's a great uh-huh. position, and and I love the work that we do. In the eight, we have kind of two things that that we uh, do on behalf of the Air Force, uh, the secretary specifically. The first one is the five-year program. Uh, the, the Department of Defense, different than many of the other branches of the executive branch, we budget in five-year chunks. We've just finished the 24 to 28 cycle, uh, and we've now turned that into Department of Defense. Uh, so that the the program, we call it the POM, the Program Objective Memorandum, that is our five-year proposal uh, for what the future of the Air Force will look like. And then beyond that, we go from year six to year 30 in the long-range plan. And it certainly doesn't have the fidelity that the program has, but it is an indication of what we think in terms of uh, capability, capacity, modernization, force structure, manpower, all of those things that it takes to build the future force, uh, they are laid out in the plan to demonstrate where we believe the trajectory of the Air Force needs to go. So those are the the two things that that the eight focuses on the most intently. And uh, we are we are very proud uh, that we have the impact uh, on the future force that we do via the resourcing side of uh, of government bureaucracy. That's that's a great rundown, and you you can hardly uh, read a document in D.C. or talk with someone without someone using the word strategy. It's a, it's a, a it's an often used term, and sometimes I, I think people don't really understand what the, we mean by it. And, and the most basic definition I have of strategy is essentially the coordination of ends and means. And to me, that's the essence of what you're doing. You're identifying an objective, the kind of air force that we as a country need, and then you're trying to bring along the means uh, to make that a reality. I don't know. Is that an oversimplification of of what you're doing? No, I think it's exactly accurate. And and kind of the way I would lay this out is we have a strategy. We have uh, both a national security strategy and a national defense strategy. We know what it is our nation wants to accomplish, but you can't budget for a strategy. Right. You can budget for a list of items uh, and you can put more or less money against them and you can do that sooner or later in the planning horizon, uh, but you, you can't bake a thought or a concept or a strategy into a budget. And so that is what we do is we distill that strategy down to the list of items that need to be put in the budget with more or less money against them sooner or later so that the strategy can be made real. That's that's a great that's summary. And, and as uh, listeners have probably heard me say one too many times is that um, you'd be the uh, the the military that our you know sons daughters husbands wives uh, descendants will use in the future is being built today, and that's what you're doing. You're 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 
uh, conceiving uh, and, and developing and prioritizing, pushing forward uh, the weapons, aircraft uh, capabilities that uh, the Air Force will use in the future. And, and that will determine a success and failure in the battlefield. So I, I have a hard time imagining a, a more important task and just want to thank you sincerely for your service. So setting the table here as we start to move into some more specifics, um, you know, for the listeners, you'll, you'll know this well and probably can uh, correct any mistakes I make here. But for fiscal year 2023, which started on October 1st, uh, uh, just uh, in the last few days, the Air Force requested $169.5 billion uh, for its budget. That's a $13.2 billion increase over the previous year. And yet, um, you know, you cited some of the numbers earlier and, and looking at um, great analysis here by Mar- Mark Kansian over at CSIS, you know, he said that our fleet uh, has, uh, aging has slowed, but has not stopped. And, uh, you know, he this is this was from November 21. So the information is a little dated, but, you know, the average age of some of our fleets, 45 years is the average age for our bombers, according to him, 49 years for our tankers, 29 years for fighter and attack aircraft. So, you know, I mean, most pilots, most, you, you're a pilot yourself, most Air Force pilots are flying aircraft far older than themselves. And so, you know, when, when we hear that 169 billion number, wow, that sounds like a lot of money. And yet we're struggling to have a fleet that has, um, that, that is of sufficient size and, and sufficiently modernized. What, why is that? Well, I think there are, certainly there are, in a situation like this, there's always more than one root cause. Yep. Uh, I think we have concentrated so heavily over the last couple of decades on counterinsurgency warfare that the imperative to modernize has not been what we feel it to be today. Mm. The force that can effectively fight and win on really what is an 18th century battlefield. There's no opposing air force in the desert. There is virtually no surface to air threat whatsoever. That's a different force than it takes to confront a peer adversary. Mm -hmm. And so the imperative to modernize over the last, you could even go back to 1991. You could say this is a 30 year uh, kind of a look back instead of 20. Uh, But certainly for the last 20, the imperative to modernize has just not been what it is now. And once that imperative arrives, it takes time to put in place both the parts of the defense industrial base and the parts of the resourcing strategy for the Air Force that it takes to actually do it. Uh, And I think that's where we are right now. Uh, I think there also is uh, a strong desire um, to maintain that which we have. And you mentioned at the very beginning, when a lot of people think of modern warfare, they think of fighting the Gulf War again. Mm. That is not the war we face. And the things that have served us very, very well through counterinsurgency warfare, they're not going to China. Probably the best example we have of this is the A-10. The A-10 is not a part of the China fight because it isn't survivable. It doesn't have a contribution to make. It's too slow. Uh, It does carry a large uh, volume of weapons, which is very helpful. But if there's an air-to-air threat, it's not able to participate because it isn't survivable. So uh, what we have proposed over multiple budget cycles now is that we move on from what has been an iconic aircraft that has served us well to something that actually can participate in a China fight. And that discussion plays out across just about every portfolio we have. And we are, we are getting support. Uh, we are, uh, I believe going to start divesting A-10s in FY23. And it's, it's time that we move towards a force that will allow us to achieve the ends envisioned in the strategy. Uh, and I think the start of the A-10 will be in FY23. There are lots of other places where this needs to play out similarly. Uh, and we continue to work with our uh, with the Department of Defense, with Office of Management and Budget, and with the great support of uh, of the Hill 
to get these things done. I want to uh, talk more in a moment, if if we can, about divestment, because I, I think that's it's related to kind of the, the bigger picture stuff we're talking about. Um, you know, and uh, and just in the context of your comments on the A10, you know, when, when we talk about what we're going to need for the future, right? We have to make assumptions, right? I don't know what I'm going to have for breakfast tomorrow, much less, you know, what what conflict might look like in a year, or five years, ten years. Um, to to what degree do we need do you know our inability to to precisely predict the future? Does that does that or should that inform what aircraft we keep in the Air Force inventory? Like, I mean, are you know, are we, can we be confident we're not going to be back in a Middle East context for sure? Uh, can we be confident uh, or do you just have to make the best assumptions and then and mitigate risks where you can? How do you think through that? So the assumptions that underlie this are the same assumptions that underlie the strategy. Mm-hmm. And the national defense strategy is predicated on the assumption that the thing we need to be prepared for is to defeat Chinese aggression. Yeah. So- uh, the, we have with clarity an idea of what the future force needs to look like. If you build a force that can fight low-end warfare, you cannot take it to a high-end fight. If, however, you build a force that's capable of winning a high-end fight, mm-hmm. it can also fight low-end warfare. Yeah. It's, it's a lot more expensive than it ought to be. And it isn't the force that you would build if you knew that counterinsurgency warfare was the end you have in mind. Yeah. But if you build a force that's capable of low-end warfare, it doesn't help you in the event that you find yourself in a high-end fight. And not just the rhetoric, but also the actions are there to indicate that China is preparing for that fight, and we have to do the same. Yeah. Thank you. The, um, you know, the list of, of aircraft, and you've touched on some of them, including the A-10 already, that the Air Force would like to divest a fancy term in Washington for retire. Uh, it, you know, it's a long list. You mentioned the A-10s. There's also the F, uh, you know, these are full or partial divestments to be clear. F-15E, E-3, uh, the uh, airborne early warning aircraft, KC-135 refuelers, an aircraft that you've flown in the past. F-22 Raptors, C-130, E-8, J-Stars uh, uh, that help uh, detect ground movement, uh, uh, enemy movement on the ground, Global Hawks and Reaper uh, drones. So it's a long list. And, and you know, looking at, again, back at uh, Mark Kansian's analysis in terms of the over, over aircraft inventory size, it, it appears to me, and you'll correct me if I'm wrong, Jen, well, the low point for the size of the Air Force was around 2010. And it's kind of come up from there a little bit and leveled out. And there's this question in military circles and, and something I've dealt with through the years is capability and capacity. You're talking a lot about, I think, rightly about capability. Do we have the modern capabilities to make sure that our airmen do not confront adversaries with more advanced capabilities? We want to have the most modern, best uh, aircraft equipment possible. But as you'll know better than me, we also need to have enough of them and capacity. And so it's this constant trade-off between uh, do we have enough and do we have enough modern and and um, and so if how do you think through um, how low is too low? How how small of an Air Force is too small as you're trying to make a good faith effort to create budget space for modernization? It's a fair question. Uh, I would say how small of an Air Force is too small. We probably would look at it from the other direction. Uh, what we would say is at at what point do you have a sufficient force to go forward? And so – that involves capability and capacity, as you've discussed. It also involves force structure. It also involves manpower. Uh, it involves a wide variety of foundational uh, investments that it takes to make the force ready to go with the proper capability mm-hmm. and capacity. Mm-hmm. And so that balance is a challenge. And yeah. and in this in this budget cycle in 23 and again in 24, the secretary has focused uh, very, very sharply – 
on closing the capability gaps that exist in a war fight against Chinese aggression. And so what you'll find is, is a strong preference for capability. Shortly behind that is capacity. Uh, and if you think about, as we've discussed a couple of times here, what it takes to confront a peer adversary, mm-hmm. when you find a gap in the capability needed, you have to fill that gap or you will not have an end-to-end ability yeah. to dominate and, if necessary, win. So that's what we focused on. Behind that, you have to also be able to do that in in quantity uh, sufficient to get to the end of the fight. It's not enough to be able to win the first night yeah. if you're then right. out of capacity. So certainly both of these are are a part of the discussion we have in the in the 23 and again in the 24 budget cycle focused on capability, specifically on closing the key gaps in a fight against Chinese aggression. Thank you. As you're trying to link ends and means with the, the budget that you've been given, uh, it occurs to me that inflation is an important consideration. We'd love to just hear your thoughts on on how you're coping with inflation and how that's making you, all your tasks more challenging. Yeah, inflation is a real challenge, and, and uh, both the administration uh, and and the Hill have been very very helpful in mitigating the impact of inflation. But it it is a real um, Im- influencer on how far our dollars go. And so our goal is to make sure that we don't let any one part of the portfolio grow, even including inflation, faster than the other portions so that we maintain the balance that we've just talked about. That's really kind of where we focus. Uh, Office of Management and Budget publishes tables that we use to predict inflation. And so inflation kind of is what it is. What we that are responsible for is making sure that we keep the balance within the portfolio about where we think it needs to be. And Mackenzie Eaglin at uh, AEI has done a lot of great work on this, and she's talked about how in her uh, – I don't want to mischaracterize, but how in her analysis, uh, DOD often has an inflation level that's actually higher than the larger economy. Is, is, is that been your experience as well? It has been, particularly in the large accounts. The largest single account that we have is the military personnel account that pays for folks in uniform. That account grows faster than the rate of inflation, and it is – about 20% of our overall portfolio. And then shortly behind that are the investment accounts. That's where we buy modern things. Those have marginally outpaced inflation. And then behind that are the sustainment accounts that we use to uh, do heavy maintenance, uh, spare parts, all of those. And that account, also quite large, has outpaced inflation for the last several cycles. So keeping up with those and making sure that they don't take the portfolio out of balance, that that has been our yeah. challenge. Yeah. In a moment, I'd love to move into some specific systems, but just uh, I can't resist asking, you know, f- you know, coming out of hopefully knock on wood COVID uh, and the impact that that's had on our broader economy. And uh, I'm interested in your kind of assessment of, of the health of the Air Force's defense industrial innovation base. Um, you know, I, I worked in the Senate for years and I was there when the uh, Budget Control Act of 2011 was passed and I've, I've observed uh, the habitual reliance on continued resolutions. Uh, how 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 healthy or not healthy would you say is the Air Force's domestic defense industrial innovation base right now as you try to connect these ends and means as we've talked about? So I think the the defense industrial base is still struggling to come out of COVID, and specifically what they're struggling with is the supply chain. The workforce is also a, a profound impact on on their business, but. But mainly it's the supply chain, and that impacts their ability to deliver on time. Uh, I would say if there's a concern we have going forward with the defense industrial base, 
It's the surge capacity. Mm. There, there is day-to-day capacity to produce the things that that the Air Force and the rest of the Joint Force, quite frankly, and our allies and partners included, need to procure in order to be ready to confront Chinese aggression. There is not surge capacity. In the event that this happens and we have to surge and we need to replenish our stores rapidly, that is probably our biggest concern. It's it's just simply not still resident in the defense industrial base. Uh, hopefully, we will we will manage the procurement accounts between now and the time that this would occur, that a surge won't be necessary. But I suspect that when the time comes, there'll be no way to do this absent a surge, and that'll be a challenge. That's such an important point, and as again, as you know better than me, it you know once uh, once there's a, a conflict there, it, you know it takes time to get the pe- the people trained to get the, to create the industrial capacity, and there's a lag time, and 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 a lot of listeners will have seen that kind of playing out in the context of Ukraine, right? We want to get a lot of capabilities to them quickly. Um, to do that, we've taken some stuff out of our own inventory. Uh, it's been you know called presidential drawdown authority, but as as we uh, as as that kind of comes to an end for a variety of reasons we're having to put these things on contract and we're seeing the delivery dates kind of being pushed out farther into the future and that's so that's just a very tangible example of where we want to uh, provide uh, uh, a certain capability but you know in the end it comes down to how fast can we produce these uh, these systems these weapons you know just coming back to some quick budget numbers i noticed in the, the air force's uh, fiscal year 23 budget request there, there's there's a, a a very significant plus up in research development tests and evaluation um, there's also a significant plus up in operation maintenance, which is kind of the core of maintaining a ready force. Now, the procurement numbers are are there's there's an increase, but not as much as RDTNE, and so that uh, research, development, test, and evaluation. So that that funding, would you agree? That's kind of the the seed money, if you will, that that uh, creates capabilities for the future. And if we have a sufficiently robust procurement budget, then that cre- starts to create the industrial capacity that's there if we need to grow it in the future. Did I get about that right? Or would- a- absolutely, I certainly, I certainly agree with that. And the emphasis on the the developmental side of the Air Force budget, the research, development, technology, and and evaluation budget (RDTNE) is based on the premise that if if you don't conduct those activities now, you can never get the time back. Yeah. And so the the capabilities that need to be developed, we have to get after that, and we have to do it as soon as we possibly can because we'll never be able to turn the clock back. That's right. The the capacity that comes along with that, we will find ourselves in a similar position after that RDT&E is ready to move into procurement. Uh, but for right now, what we have chosen to do and what the secretary has asked us to do is make the capabilities that we need ready to go. Mm-hmm. And when the time comes, we'll assume the money will be there uh, to to procure those things that we need to procure. But if we don't do the development now, mm-hmm. it'll be an opportunity that we can never get back. And you won't even have the option because it won't be there. And, and that's such an important point. And, and I'll make an assertion here in general, and you can correct me if I get any details wrong, but we we have all these wonderful, I would say wonderful RD research development test evaluation programs underway. Um, and and we're, we're pushing forward all of these options for the reasons you just laid out. But, um, you know, because we kind of took, I would say, a holiday from history in terms of modernization, kind of delaying modernization because of finite budgets, there's going to come a time where it's it's time to transition from research and development to procurement. Uh, and, and we would have to have a dramatically larger procurement budget to field a lot of those weapon systems. Is that right? Or would you? Well, I think we're already there. I think we can see that in the 21 and the 22 cycles, there are fighters, for example, that we should have procured that we didn't. And 
you know, it would be our desire never to walk past another F-35 procurement slot because that slot on the line, if not bought in a particular fiscal year, it's gone forever. And so I think we can look back and see that there are some missed opportunities in the last couple of cycles, and we would like not to to continue that trend. Uh, I think for some weapon systems, uh, just because of where they are in their development, they're not quite ready yet. But the ones that are, those are the ones that are lamentable because that we have not procured um, items. F-35 is is probably the most salient example that we have not procured as many as we could. We'll, we won't be able to go back and, and buy those later. I'm glad you said that because it's my understanding that's exactly what we're doing right now in this budget. That is we're, we're procuring less F-35As, Joint Strike Fighters, than we could because we have to finish uh, procurement of the F-15EX. Is that right? No, I don't think we would pit those two against each other. Uh, they they each serve a different role in yeah, the fighter sure. portfolio. For and sure. so uh, what what I'm I, just talking about in terms of budget space, not capability of the individual aircraft. I mean, aren't, wouldn't we be wouldn't we be procuring more F-35As if we had more budget, but we had to give some of that to procure the F-15EX? I would say we'd procure more F-35As if we had more budget. Yeah, but we would not. We would not say that we procured F-15EXs at the expense of uh, F-35. Okay, okay, okay. They both have a role yeah, to play in the portfolio. Sure. Yeah. And as we try and strengthen the fighter portfolio from seven different platforms yeah. down to four, yeah. those two are enduring. For sure. And they both need to be a part of the future force. Very good. Yeah, I, I may have been sloppy in my wording there. I wasn't trying to suggest we didn't need one or the other. It's my view uh, that you know, it's called fighter mix. We, we need both. Uh, the F-15EX provides a weapons uh, carrying capacity. The F-35A does not, but the F-35A provides stealth-like capabilities. The F-15EX does not. And so we need both. I don't know if you want to comment on Agree. that. Agree. Yeah. Okay. All right. So speaking of programs, let's jump in uh, to some specific ones. And I'm going to do my best here to avoid acronyms, uh, but uh, um, maybe we can start with each one of them, if you're willing, General, just kind of describing to the lay listener what it is and what its general mission is, and then we can talk about, if you're willing, some of the specifics. So let's start with the E3 Century Airborne Warning and Control System. What is that aircraft and what does it do? So this uh, this aircraft has another that has served us quite well over the years, and what it does is create an airborne radar picture uh, that that you can only get in a contested environment by creating it yourself. So the E3 has a big dome on the top that has a radar inside, uh, and we use it to manage the air war. Uh, it has served us quite well, but it is an analog system. Um, there's a 10 second delay in the radar. And I, I think one of the, one of the best ways to talk about this is you think about what's happened to computers over the years. And you think about an Apple watch having dramatically more computing power than the space shuttle. The mission computer in an E3 weighs 25,000 pounds. Wow. We don't do 25,000 pound computers anymore. That capacity, that computing capacity can be put in a dramatically smaller package, dramatically more capability, more speed, and it can be digital. Mm -hmm. And so the aircraft that we plan to transition to that we've proposed transitioning to in our 23 budget is the E7. Mm -hmm. It is a digital radar uh, based on a little bit smaller airframe, a 737 instead of a 707, mm -hmm. a modern airframe instead mm -hmm. of one that hasn't been made for decades. Which has supply chain issues for the Air Force as you're trying to find parts and, and, sus and sustain the E3, right? Absolutely. And supply chain to be sure for the airframe, but the real place that is most problematic is the engines. Mm -hmm. The engines also are several generations old and it's it's just time for us to move on from this uh, the mission capable rate of the e3 is nothing like what we would like for it to be yeah. and it isn't going to recover because of the supply chain issues aging parts it's just not going to recover 
the the E7 is an aircraft that is being produced now. Both uh, Australia and the United Kingdom have have bought the the E7, and we will follow behind uh, the capabilities that we need. Uh, they are resident in the E7. They will never, at any level of modernization or any level of, of expense, be resident in the E3. So this is one of the transitions we're most excited about. We're grateful for the for the support from the Hill as we've gone through this budget cycle. Overwhelmingly, the question has been, how can we help you get more and go faster? Right. So this one, this one um, is a wide consensus that this is the way for us to go, and we're excited to get the the E7 on the ramp. And we're excited to get the E3 in the boneyard. Absolutely. And, and uh, you mentioned the Australians. I mean, the E7, uh, as you know, but some of the listeners may not, the the Australians are already flying the E7. As I understand it, we've put some of our Air Force personnel down there in Australia with them, learning about the system, trying to expedite the fielding of the system. We'll need to replace the E3. You bet. So so we will start uh, uh, an Air Force contingent in FY23 in Australia so that when the first aircraft arrive, they'll be ready to fly it and ready to, to take it to war if need be. I've written uh, with some colleagues here about the E3, E7. Uh, transfer, I, you know, I've argued why I think uh, Congress should uh, permit uh, the uh, the Air Force to do um, at least a partial divestment of the E3. Uh, and and the counter argument I hear, um, and, and you, when when you when you look at uh, congressional hearings and listen to what members say, is you know t- to use uh, kind of a, a Tarzan analogy, right? <laughs> and this kind of comes down. This is kind of the argument that's employed uh, in a lot of divestments, and and uh, and that is we don't want to let go of the current vine until we have the next vine firmly in hand. And, and kind of on a human intuitive level, that makes sense. Um, but what my research tells me, and I'd love to hear you agree or disagree if you want to, is that the E3, you know, we don't have the E7 vine in hand. We, we're all doing everything we can to get that in hand as quickly as possible. But you get to a point where the, the vine that you're currently hanging on is so unreliable, is so in danger of breaking, that by not letting go of it, even if the next vine's not in hand, you're taking Taking finite financial resources, finite budgetary room, uh, and 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 dedicating manpower to that in a way that is delaying the ability to grab the next vine. And so, uh, I wonder if you agree with that metaphor. I, I took Tarzan maybe a little too far there, but uh, did I get it about right that you get to a point where the existing vine is just in such bad shape, hanging on to any longer doesn't make any sense. I, I think that's a, a great analogy. And eventually, what happens is you ride the vine you have all the way to the ground. Right. right. And and <laughs> right. that's not what we. Want want to right. do with the E3. Yeah. We don't want to ride it all the way into the ground. We have, uh, for all the right reasons, flown the E3s and a variety of other fleets very, very hard over the last 30 years. Uh, we needed to create an air picture over Iraq. Yeah. We needed to create an air picture over Afghanistan. Um, the fact of the matter is that fleet is not going to come back. Yeah. And so you can hold on to that vine and swing from it all you want. You're just going to ride it all the way to the yeah. ground. And, and so well said. And it's and it's no and you're not suggesting I'm not, but just for clarity, it's no disrespect to the aircraft. It's no disrespect to the pilots and crews for years. It's it served our national security well for so long. But you know, I mean, you, you've flown a number of aircraft, and we love those aircraft. I, I used to fly Black Hawk helicopters. We love these aircraft. But there comes a time for every cra- aircraft when it's time to let it go to make sure that the people come behind us have what they need. And it seems to me that the uh, E three E7 is exactly that. One kind of specific wonky question I wanted to ask you uh, about the uh, E7 as we all kind of work together to get this thing filled as quickly as possible because of the threat we've been talking about is it's my understanding that the Air Force submitted what's called a reprogramming request to Congress to get the E7 program office established. Do you know, has that been approved by all the appropriate congressional committees yet? It has not that I'm aware of. I, I will say that 
the reason for doing that was as insurance against a continuing resolution at the start of FY23. The the E7 is a new start in FY23. And so uh, beginning that program would have to wait until the end of a CR. And one of the, one of the most impactful, one of the most negatively impactful things that happens as a part of the budget process is continuing resolutions. Mm-hmm. I think there's wide agreement that surrounds that, uh, but it doesn't seem that we can get past them. I, I think I think we're getting ready to be one for fifteen. For the last fifteen years, we've had we've had a bill on time one time. Uh, that is a negative impact on us and the other services. Uh, that. It really does degrade our buying power. It degrades our ability to start new programs. And I think if there were one thing that we could really implore um, the the policymakers to do differently, it is we we simply have got to stop running the the government on CRs. Yeah, you're you're preaching to the choir on that one. And I was going to ask you about that earlier. And I'm so glad uh, later. And I'm so glad you brought it up. You know, the uh, you know working in the Senate. I if I had a dollar for every time we we called up, uh, you know, a, a senior officer like yourself or a, a political appointee before one of the Armed Service Committee and and berated them about uh, going too slow on this or that program or wasting money on this or that. But as you rightly point, one of the leading sources of lost time and lost money is this continuing uh, habitual reliance on continuing resolutions. And some of the listeners are saying, what the heck is a continuing resolution? It's basically, um, instead of providing a new uh, defense appropriation each fiscal year uh, for the Department of Defense, what Congress does, because it hasn't been able to do that on time, is essentially copies and pastes the uh, budget from the previous year into the new year. You think, hey, what's so bad about that? Well, there's a lot bad about that because, as you know better than me, General, uh, you know er, the, the threat is changing, uh, as we discussed. The capabilities and capacities and readiness and all is changing. And so each year we put in thousands of, of man and woman hours developing this new budget, but it, that's essentially cast aside and ignored when we simply copy and paste the budget from the previous year. And here we are once again out into the new fiscal year. And once again, we don't, the Department of Defense, the Air Force does not have a new defense appropriation and doesn't have a new authorization act, which prevents you from starting some of the new programs you want. And so as I kind of zoom out, I, you know, I, you know, you, we can sometimes act like our adversary or potential adversaries are are thirty feet tall. They're not, but you know, I, I see the PLA sprinting, and sometimes I see a lot of us in Washington slumbering. And no, no one's no one's evil here. I'm not trying to malign anyone's reputation, but we're just not getting. It seems to me, general, the basic blocking and tackling done. It, we give you a mission, but we need to also give you the means to conduct that mission. We need to do it on time. Did I overstate that? Or no, I think it's accurate. Uh, I think the the question you have to ask is, do you believe this is urgent? Right. Do you believe that the need to modernize is urgent? Do you, in fact, believe it's a crisis? If you believe it's urgent, and certainly if you believe it's a crisis, one of the things that you absolutely have to do is pass the appropriations and the authorization bills on time. Yeah. And I'll, and I'll make a political comment. I won't ask you to comment because you're an active military officer. You don't want to get political. But to, to listeners – Next time you're at a town hall meeting and you hear someone talking about the threat from Vladimir Putin or the threat from the Chinese Communist Party, uh, ask them, hey, what are you doing to get the Department of Defense an on-time budget and authorization? That might be a good follow-up question at the, at the town hall meeting. So I'll, I'll move on from that. General, let's talk about uh, the fighter force. When the average American not familiar with the Air Force kind of thinks of, uh, of, the, of the service, we think of, uh, of fighters. It's, it's a core element of, of what the service does. Um, you know, we, we've touched on a little bit in terms of size and age, but we'd just kind of like to hear a little bit more from you on, on where you see the current Air Force uh, uh, fighter force and, and where it's going. Yeah, it's a, it's a 
great portfolio to use as an exemplar. It certainly will be on the front line of any of any fight with a pure competitor. Uh, it has been on the front line of counterinsurgency fight as well. And this, like the E3, uh, is a collection of airplane that we have flown really, really hard over the last several years. Uh, and we just have expended their life more quickly than we anticipated. And the capabilities that they possess in many cases are not suitable to take to high-end conflict. And so the need to modernize is urgent. I think we're already there. Uh, and as we talked about a few minutes ago, we we have passed some procurement slots in in the 21 and 22 cycles that that we probably shouldn't have. And so uh, we believe that this need is urgent. Uh, there are many who believe it's a crisis. And so uh, what we will endeavor to do is modernize this fleet as quickly as possible. And one of the ways that we anticipate doing that is drawing down from seven fighter, seven different types of fighters mm. down to four so mm. that we can concentrate on uh, those that are the most impactful in a peer fight. Yeah, no, that's great. Anything that you want to say regarding the F-22 and maybe just start with uh, for, for listeners, what is the F-22 and, and what's kind of the decision space right now related to that aircraft? Sure. The F-22 uh, is one of the parts of the future force that is most important to us. It is the aircraft that gains air, air superiority. Air superiority is our ability to control the air absent enemy interference at the time and place of our choosing. It is foundational to any air campaign anywhere. I would argue that one of the reasons the battle in Ukraine has gone on as long as it has is because neither side has established right. air superiority. One of the big surprises of the war for a lot of folks. Absolutely. And had that happened, I believe we would have seen potentially a more rapid resolution. Um, had the Russians gained air superiority, I believe it would have gone in a direction that we would not have been happy with. Right. Uh, nevertheless, air superiority, as I said, is foundational. The F-22 is one of the ways that we do that. It is the primary air superiority aircraft that we have. There are 33 of them that were built at the beginning. Uh, we call them Block 20s, and they have a different level of capability than the Block 30s and the Block 35s that were built. And, and the blocks, forgive me, General, the blocks are just kind of the, uh, so you'll, you'll, you'll build an aircraft and then you'll kind of have new iterations of that same aircraft that have more modern software capabilities. So when we talk about blocks, that's essentially, yeah. You can almost think of it like the model year for a car. Right. right this right. year's model year has yeah, yeah, things that yeah. last year's model yeah. year didn't. And the, the Block 20s, the earlier uh, F-22s, they don't shoot our most advanced weapons. They don't have the most advanced radar. They're not able to conduct the most advanced electronic warfare, uh, and they don't have the most modern radios and uh, antennas, we call them apertures, to be a part of the communications that it takes to run uh, a modern battle, a modern air battle in particular. And in order to make those changes, it would take more than a decade and cost more than $3 billion. And so upgrading them is just not a realistic thing for us to undertake. Besides that, the engineering capacity that would do that would detract from modernization on the F-35s. Mm. And that's absolutely not something that we want to do. We use them only for training. However, because they have not uh, kept pace with the Block 30s and the Block 35s, there are a lot of aspects of training in the Block 20 that are negative learning. Uh, and when mm -hmm. our pilots go from Block 20 F-22s into their operational units and start to fly Block 30s and Block 35s, 
the first thing they have to do is unlearn right. a lot of the things you want to train the way you're going to fight. And if you're training on an excessively older aircraft, you're actually learning bad habits that hurt you rather than being neutral. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And yeah. so uh, when you consider the resources that we could transition to the to the next generation of air superiority fighters, which is next gen, next mm-hmm. generation air dominance, mm-hmm. um, which will be a mix of manned and unmanned uh, aircraft. Correct? We'll, we'll have to see how that okay. turns out. Okay. And, and about the only thing we can say about Next gen air dominance in polite company is mm-hmm. it exists mm-hmm. and it is flown. Okay, there so those those are yeah. the, the yeah. two the two things that we can uh, that we can certainly confirm. Nevertheless, the F twenty two Block twenties they have served us well, uh, but it's time to move past that, and it's time to put our pilots into a training situation where there's not negative learning involved. We get a couple of a couple of typical things that that people are concerned about. One of them is, well, aren't you just taking block thirties and thirty fives out of the combat rotation so that you can do training? Uh, there is some of that, although the amount of training that it takes is less than with the block twenties because there's no unlearning that needs to occur. When we train folks in the block thirties and thirty fives, they're ready to go when they get to their operational units, and this we believe is a trade that. That makes sense, especially given the ability to transition resources to next gen, next gen air dominance. The other thing we hear is, well, I'd a heck of a lot rather go to war and I have 22 block 20 than a lot of other things we have. Yeah. Good luck. No advanced weapons, no advanced communications, no advanced radar, no advanced electronic warfare. Anybody that wants to go to war in a machine that has those limitations, we wish them well, but it isn't going to turn out in their favor. It's time for us to move on. And this will be the first fifth generation airplane that we've put in the boneyard. There is some emotion associated with that, and we understand the concerns. We have thought long and hard about how to do this, and we believe that this is the time. Now, thank you for that. One last question related to fighters, and and you know, and and as you as you know well, you know, we we procure these aircraft not for their own sake, but because they provide effects on the battlefield, and those effects can broadly be categorized as suppression of enemy air defenses for for obvious reasons, air interdiction, the ability to strike targets kind of deep. Close air support, the ability to strike targets where friendly and enemy forces are close. Air superiority, think you know, dogfights. But also, as I look at kind of a Taiwan scenario in an unclassified context, it seems to me one of the most important things we as Americans uh, need from the U.S. Air Force, maybe arguably the most important thing, is the ability for our Air Force to sink ships. Anything you would comment on about that? So, so we agree, and and the Secretary in particular agrees. All of the missions that you outlined are missions that the Air Force has to undertake, and we have to be good at all of them. But as you've rightly pointed out, if you look at this specific scenario and the way of achieving the strategy, it is strongly dependent on the ability to sink ships. And I think you'll see over the next couple of budget cycles a shift, potentially a dramatic shift towards that capability, not just for the Air Force, but for the entire Joint Force. No, thank you. And, and of course, the, uh, you know, the aircraft are, aren't the ones sinking ships. They're sinking the ships with munitions. And, and I'm thinking of, of what we were discussing earlier about industrial capacity. And it's, it's my general sense, again, all at the unclassified level here, that um, we don't have the inventory or the industrial capacity we need to produce these munitions. Can you say anything in general about what we're doing to, to increase the inventory of munitions that we could use to sink ships uh, and to create the industrial capacity that we might need to make sure that we have the replenishments coming in that we might need. Yeah, and this this gets back to this discussion that we've had a couple of times about whether we're fighting the Gulf War in 1991 or whether we're fighting Chinese aggression Mm -hmm. in the late 20s or early 30s. And the fact of the matter is the weapons that we procured for the Gulf War 
doubling down on that is not going to get us past mm-hmm. uh, a fight against Chinese aggression. We will have to move to dramatically more advanced weapons. And so we are working within our portfolio to both develop those weapons and procure them at a rate that will allow us to make it through uh, a war fight against Chinese aggression. So uh, this is a part of the portfolio that we've paid a lot of attention to. Uh, you will see a lot of attention to it in the next couple of budget cycles as well. It is every bit as important as as you've uh, asserted, but but pure capacity is not enough here. Pure capacity won't do it. It has to be the right kind of capacity. It has to be capacity that has the right kind of capabilities for this particular fight. Yeah, very good. Thank you. All right, moving to our nuclear deterrent. Obviously, with Vladimir Putin's uh, saber rattling in the context of his unprovoked aggression in Ukraine, nuclear-related issues are in the minds of a lot of Americans. You know, whenever I hear concerns about this, one of the first things that I say is we should make sure that our nuclear deterrent is strong as can be so that all of our adversaries understand that it would not be a good day for them were they to initiate a nuclear attack against us and our allies. As you know, but some of the listeners may not, our nuclear deterrent has three major elements. We call it a triad. We have the intercontinental ballistic missiles that provide a a very reliable uh, element to our nuclear deterrent. We have bombers and we have submarines, which launch submarine-launched ballistic missiles. And the whole point here is to create dilemmas for our adversaries that are difficult for them to solve so that they don't try the nuclear aggression in the first place. That's essentially deterrence. And I would just note, you know this, but again, the listeners may not, the Air Force is responsible for two of the three elements of our nation's nuclear triad. Obviously, this gets classified very quickly. We want to stay well away from all that. But just in terms of the value that these two legs provide, the need to replace our existing uh, capabilities, and, and generally speaking to the degree you're comfortable where we're at on the modernization programs, we'd love to hear you talk about both our ICBM leg and the bomber leg. Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of add a fourth part to this, and that yeah. sort of fills in the center of what you could think of mm-hmm. as a triangle, and that is nuclear command control and communications. Yeah, thank you. And yes. the Air Force does about 70% Because if you don't stitch them together with command and control, or if it's vulnerable to attack, then, then you got a, a real problem. That's right. A very serious problem. Yeah, and so yeah. all three legs of the triad and our nuclear command control and communications are being modernized. And that modernization is proceeding. Um, it, it, it is proceeding at a satisfactory rate. I think we would all say uh, we could be okay if there were a little more margin in the transitions right. from the from the older weapon systems to the new ones. But nevertheless, uh, you'll see that that all of the development and all of the procurement, uh, it, it is all funded properly. Uh, and this is something that we, this happens first as we build the budget, we make sure that, that the nuclear portfolio is properly funded and then we move on to everything else. So, uh, I think we're comfortable with how this is going. We would like for there to be a little bit more margin. And just a little bit more detail for the listeners, the ICBM leg, the Intercontinental Ballistic Missile, the current weapon there is the 1970s era Minuteman Three. It's capable. It, it provides an important deterrence. But again, in my view, it's an example of something where we've waited a little long to modernize it. And it really makes what the Air Force is currently doing, a strategic deterrent or the Sentinel program, very important. Yeah. So the three fundamental tenets of this enterprise are safe, secure, and reliable. The Minuteman 3s are safe, secure, and reliable. I've been to Malmstrom and been into the missile field. I am amazed at what young airmen do to make sure that that weapon system is safe, secure, and reliable. But you mentioned it was a 1970s era weapon system. And when it was designed in the 1970s, it was designed for a 10-year life. Right. 
The Sentinel missile that we're designing now is designed for at least a 50-year lifespan, and it will be a dramatic improvement over what we have with Minuteman 3. It will, however, be based on those three fundamental tenets, safe, secure, and reliable. The bomber leg of the triad and, and the new capability that the Air Force is attempting to bring online is the B-21 Raider. Anything you'd like to say about that program? Yeah, we're, we're excited about, uh, about how the B-21 is progressing, and we're looking forward to, to roll out in first flight here coming up. And, you know, the bomber portfolio is one that we're looking to kind of compress as well. We have, uh, as the B-21 comes on, four different bombers. We will bring that down to two, and the enduring portions of the bomber portfolio will be heavily modernized B-52s, and as you mentioned, the B-21 Raiders. So uh, that portfolio, I think, is in good shape, and we're excited about where it's headed. There's a lot of discussion about the importance of helping Ukraine defeat Putin's unprovoked invasion and the lessons that Beijing may be drawing from that. One of the lessons, I hope, is that free people tend to want to defend their homes against unprovoked invasion, and I hope that's making Beijing think twice about trying to end freedom on Taiwan. One lesson that I think we need to be mindful of is if we allow Putin's nuclear saber rattling to make us back down and providing Ukraine the means that it needs, I do worry that Beijing could come to the conclusion that they could initiate aggression against Taiwan, rattle their nuclear sabers, and then get us to back down. So to me, uh, this is just another example where we need to be making the investments now to make sure we have the nuclear deterrence capabilities in place later so that Beijing doesn't think they could do just that, initiate aggression, rattle their nuclear saber, and then convince American leaders, politicians uh, to back down. I would love to comment on this, actually. I think there are a couple of lessons uh, that Beijing ought to take from this. Uh, The first one is uh, the world reaction to the initial aggression from Russia in Ukraine was very, very strong. This is not, it's not just free people that want to defend their homeland. It's free people that want to see free people defend their homeland. (laughs) And the world has come on very strong. Right. As nuclear saber rattling has become a thing in the last couple of weeks, the, the reaction from the world again has been very strong. Right. And I think this is something that Beijing should pay attention to. The world is not going to allow that kind of a situation to develop. And, and, the alliance that's present in Europe, I think, is is an important part of this as well. And you saw the president in the news clips this weekend say that we will defend every single square inch of NATO. He was unequivocal about how the alliance will respond in the event that they're challenged by Russia. So uh, I think that, that Beijing ought to take a, a lesson for how the world has responded to this um, for, for what that's worth. It's worth a lot. No, thank you for that. Well, General, I could go all day. I love this stuff, uh, but uh, I'm mindful of the time. I I do want to give you an opportunity to add any last comments uh, that you'd like to add. Yeah, I I appreciate that. I'm grateful for the time and I'm I'm grateful for the ability to to tell the Air Force's story. Uh, I'll add one one more little discussion that that we a little reprise on the air superiority discussion. Yeah. Uh, This is another lesson that both we and Beijing have likely taken from the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Mm. And and that is the length of this conflict uh, has seems to be increased by the fact that neither side has achieved air superiority. It will be imperative in the event that we have to defeat Chinese aggression that we are able to establish air superiority. Uh, we're mindful of that and we're building a portfolio that will be able to do that. Uh, but I, I think that that will be 
Uh, it is an important lesson that we all need to pay attention to. It's not as simple as saying if we had better artillery, this would be done by now. That's just not what we believe. What we believe is that the reason this has gone on as long as it has uh, is because nobody's been able to dominate from the air. I agree with you. Often in Washington, I observe each service trying to say that, you know, hey, my service is providing the one essential capability. And what I hear you saying is that it's a joint force and that, again, we want to create as many dilemmas for our adversaries as possible. And we often think of the European theater as an army theater. But your point is the air domain has had impact on the ground, of course, but also on, on the overall conflict. And I would make the same argument in the Indo-Pacific, right? You know, if I have to prioritize resources in the Indo-Pacific, I, for one, would prioritize the Navy and the Air Force. But I'd also add that the Army has an important role in logistics and air and missile defense and other things like that. Yeah. And it does take the entire joint force. I'll, I'll leave you with a, with a half-armor quote from 1942. <laughs> a modern autonomous Air Force will not alone be sufficient, but without it, there will be no national security. That's great. Well, General, I've really enjoyed uh, sitting down with you. I want to sincerely thank you and your family for your decades of service to our country. Thank you for spending so much time in such a good faith effort to make sure that um, our airmen uh, never confront an adversary wielding uh, more uh, effective weapons than our own. And and by doing that, we can prevent conflict. And and God forbid, if that conflict comes, that we can prevail. So thank you uh, for this opportunity to talk with you. And I look forward to chatting again soon here on Foreign Policy. Likewise. Thanks, Brad. Thank you for listening to Foreign Policy. If you found the program worthwhile, we suggest you subscribe to Foreign Policy on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or wherever you prefer to listen to your podcasts. Send us your feedback, your questions, your ideas to foreignpodicy at fdd.org. For more information about this episode and others and about our distinguished guests, visit us online at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.